Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? We're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. It's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you Uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think I'm looking at him, right? But then I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did. In fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, Anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. Now, as you know, we are doing another live show. Cambridge Audio presents Rock on Tours Live. We are delighted to say Trevor Horn is joining us for a special show in London on November the 2nd. And we have some extra tickets to ensure you can join us. Uh, so these extra tickets will only be available to subscribers of Rock on Tours and are on a first-come basis. So if you subscribe, make sure you get your tickets now. And if you haven't signed up yet, just go to rockontours.com to find out more and get your free tickets. Rock and Tour subscribers will get access to our upcoming live events, bonus episodes, meet and greets, exclusive Q&As and much more. Find out more at rockontours.com. Obviously not when this goes out, but I should point out today one should be wishing you a very, very happy birthday. Thank you so much. I have finally accepted that I can only play parts down to 41. (laughs) (laughs) But you're still not using your free... London Transport Pass, are you? I refuse to do that. <laughs> but I, I suppose the other good thing is I'm now the almost the title of a Beatles song. Oh, well, there is that. There's always that. And uh, but also, <laughs> by the way, this is a great day for Rock on Tours. Again, this is all in the past, but it's quite nice to mention because our Davey Johnson episode has just gone out and it's gone in at number one. And one of the stories Davey told us about Elton trying to push a piano off the stage because he was drunk has made it onto the Today Show on Radio 4, The Times and The Telegraph. Yeah, isn't that good, right? And I know this, our next guest, who's been on the show before, but has this amazing book out. He's got a big birthday coming up this month too. He's going to be 60. Johnny, 60. yeah. 60. Little Johnny Marr is going to be 60. I mean, it's hard to fathom, isn't it, that we're all at that age now. Yeah, and he's, he's probably going to get a guitar for every year. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because this book, it must be said, this book is, it's, it's, I haven't seen a guitar book like it. It's beautiful. I love it. I love it. Mars Guitars. The trouble is, this is going to be the most expensive book I never paid for. (laughs) Because because it's inspiration. It's going to have me walking up and down Denmark Street and various other 
guitar shops over how, how you know the, the next years of my life yeah um, it actually i should buy a birthday present for myself shouldn't i well you should yes you should because and 1950 i have got you one i've got you a lovely present we have to meet we have to we meet have to and meet. 19, but uh, 1959 of course is a great year for any guitar so oh, if anyone it's, out it's there... a great year for one in particular <laughs> isn't it well, one of, yeah, one in particular, but uh, uh, I don't that's think the I, Les Paul for those I, who are. I don't think I'm allowed to buy that. No, it's, you can basically buy a Les Paul or a house. <laughs> or a divorce lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's fantastic that we're going to be seeing Johnny. He's a proper dear old friend of the Rock on Tours, and we love him and we know you do. So let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, it's, it's Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! John! <laughs> All right, Hello, mate. Look at that northern sunshine. I know. I'm trying to avoid it. I've got blinds down and everything. Trying to trying to avoid all this uh, sunlight. Your no, studio it's just full looks 80s beautiful. video, isn't it? With the yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like Mister Mister oh, yeah. or something. No, it's, it's, it's rich. It's Richard Gere, American Gigolo, isn't it? Yeah. Sold more blinds than any other film ever. What, what, one tries. Gary, one tries. <laughs> <laughs> Your studio looks beautiful. I've got so much studio envy as I'm looking at it. Yeah, I mean, it, this is the room that I've got in my house. It's kind of, it's turned into a bit of a mixing room. I got it, I did this really because technology got so small. The story is, I used to have a big, uh, I had a studio at my previous place and uh, it was in a separate building, like an outbuilding, kind of like a barn, big live room and everything. Really beautiful place. And then when we moved, I moved into this, industrial kind of space at the top of an old mill outside of Manchester. That's my real studio. But the point is, I spent a few years running around telling everybody, probably Guy, that I've seen the light, I've seen the light. Don't have a studio in your house. Don't. After 20 <laughs> odd years, I've seen the light. Drive to the studio. Anyway, now I've got two. I've got one at home and I've got one somewhere else as well. Where do you go? Where do you put, where, what's your go-to? Uh, well, I, I try and usually if I'm, you know, my normal, you know, Sibby life, I, I go to, the studio, my studio every day, it's about 20 minutes down the road. And it's in this big, as I say, this big industrial space. You have to come and see it sometime. And uh, it's it's, it's uh, on the top floor of a, an old factory. Because of that, I think you'll know what I'm talking about, you guys. The very first thing I did when I moved in there was I put, I just had got these kind of human league cabaret Voltaire vibes. And the very first song I did in there was I, I got a drum machine and put it through some pedals, this song called New Dominions. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this sort of, I have this associative northern industrial kind of place sort of vibe about it, which I like and which is which has really worked, but it's all windows. It looks a little bit like a New York loft in the 70s or 60s. It's brilliant. Suffice yeah, it yeah. to say, I would, I'd just never be able to do that in London because the, just the is, I, space and the money, you know. I was just saying, I've got a space right near Knowles, actually, and most of my guitars now have all moved over to there. Yeah. And, and and so my little place at, at home, 
is, which is really nothing but a box room, but I can make good sounding tracks on it. It's just like just got one or two guitars sitting in it now. Cause, and like so that. I'm always wondering where should my guitars live, you know? And that's, I'm asking you that question. You well, know? I like the idea. Um, I like the idea of just having a few go-tos. And I think with technology really being what it is these days with online um, line-in stuff, Kempers and Fractals and the new Fender thing and, you know, you can get so much tonal variety now. You really can cover a lot of bases with just a few guitars. So I like that idea of, you know, sparsity and like, you know, uh, getting lean. I do like that, says the guy. You like just, the idea, well, you say that, John. I was going to say, I think you like the idea of it. Says the but guy. I who's think just you, your reality it. is <laughs> exactly. 132 <laughs> guitars not out. One of the reasons why I find myself being drawn to doing this book was kind of along those lines anyway. It was a sort of reappraisal. There was a few reasons why why I've done the book. But are we are we first? On? Can we just say? Can we? Yeah, we are. Yeah. Okay. First, can we just say? Um, it's a, it's the most beautiful guitar book ever. It's it's so fantastically photographed and and your stories. Oh, thank you, guy. Yeah, yeah. But obviously, yeah. it's all about the blonde Rickenbacker twelve-string in the middle. That it looks good, though. And did it you does st- look very, very good. Oh, oh what's the story? What's the story? Johnny came down and played on something for me for the Transit Kings album. Actually, the thing I was doing with Don Beacon and uh, at my studio because Johnny happened to be in the townhouse, and he said, "Oh, can I play this?" And he played this Ricky Twelve with came up with a brilliant part as ever. And then a week or two later, I get a call from Johnny. Go, you know that Ricky? Yeah. Do Do you want to sell it? I didn't really, but it's Johnny. Oh, what are you going to do? Sweet. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I've never had one since. I've never a, had another Ricky 12. I really enjoyed doing that part, that Transit Kings thing. That was it's a, a good great play. part. Such a good part. Yeah. Do you get mentioned in the book for that guy? He does no, at the back. I got yeah. You do. Oh, do I? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, you know right, what? He, he oh, yeah. I didn't see all that. Yeah. 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 He's, Sorry. Come love. on, guy. Due diligence. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, Johnny, I was saying on, on the introduction, I, I, I love this book so much, but it, it is, it's going to be the most expensive book that I ever got for nothing because it's going to just cost me, it's inspiring me to go out shopping. All the, I mean, this is just a, an envious collection of guitars. What's so beautiful is, that, is how you're not like most guitarists, and I have to say who... Who, who latch on to one type of guitar. And, you know, actually Clapton's been, has, has a wide taste, and so did Harrison. But, you know, a lot of guitarists just latch on to one type of guitar, and that becomes their signature guitar forever. It took you a long time to get to that signature guitar, didn't it? Yeah. The thing with me is, uh, if I may, you know, it's, um, the parallels really, I say Jimmy Page, for example, uh, you know, when, when, when one thinks of Jimmy Page, most people think of him with a Les Paul, but musicians, particularly people who are really students of the guitar, they know that one of his, one of the, the aspects of Jimmy Page was that he, he used harmony um, 12 strings or different acoustic 12 strings and he used B string bender and he used Telecaster and he used 335 and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and another one, I guess, is Pete, you know, Pete Townsend. We're both, we're, we're all like people who, we we use different guitars for to do different jobs, but still manage to be associated with a guitar. I think. But your diversity has been extraordinary, and it's been really your journey through music, hasn't it? That diversity. Yeah, well, that happened in the making of the book, really, Gary. Uh, that journey thing and the telling of those stories was, was genuinely something that I hadn't uh, actually planned. What really, with the impetus for the book, was that 
my friend Pat Graham is a real genius photographer. He specializes in, he's very artistic Pat, and he, he specializes in uh, taking these macro, really detailed photographs of bits of things and it blows them up. And then they, they're these really beautiful, abstract, artistic photographs. So if you give Pat a, give him, you know, uh, your guitar and ask him to take a photograph of it, what comes back is this abstract, amazing kind of photograph. And you go, is that like a, is that like some uh, sunset in, in Iceland yeah. or something? Yeah, and he goes, yeah. oh no, I just, I saw this beautiful bit of rust on the case. And then I took this photograph and I blew it right up. And you're like, amazing, beautiful photos. So seriously, first off, a few years ago, I thought I'd love to produce a book like that, an art book or coffee table book, if you will, of these really artistic, fantastic photographs and use my guitar as the source material or my guitar collection. And that was the idea. So usually with guitar books, as you guys will know, usually guitar books look like watch catalogs auction catalogs that's all they are the the photographs are in these dark rooms with sexy james bond type type lighting and the idea is really to make the objects look five times more expensive than they are you know they look like rolex adverts or something and they're, they're really quite boring and um you're supposed to see the whole thing make these portraits well i came at it from the opposite way i wanted a compensable book art book also for people who had this whole thing about people who wouldn't normally buy guitar books or think they want guitar books to have it. I found that, I don't know whether you guys know this, but I found that as I've got older with with making records and a couple of other projects that I've done, one was the autobiography, that the the creative process, you have considerations that I, I, I find this very interesting. When I was younger, making an album with whoever, I used to think the more considerations, the better, and that kind of worked for me. So you can have, one consideration might be, the album's got to be different to the last time. The other consideration might be, we've got a concept. Another one is, we want to please the press. Blah, blah, blah. I used to think all of these spinning plates were useful, and that's the way I used to do things. But as I've got older, I've realised that if you've got four or five strong considerations that are really, you feel good about, I've done this with records, just apply those or adhere to those. And that happened with the book. For example, I had this notion that I remembered being a kid where most of my factors, most of my more middle-class friends, I come from a working-class background, they would have coffee table books, whereas we didn't, just didn't bother. And there was the Book of Mercedes or Book of British Gardens or Zen Gardens or Book of Architecture. We didn't have those in my house. We had, we had records. Right. So I thought, well, one of the considerations with this was as I was in the process early in, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if this book was good enough to be the go to guitar book because it's so beautiful and because it looks like an art book? So when I went to the publishers and we were working this thing out, that was a big consideration of mine. Like, I want this to be for people who. It's just so beautiful that people who wouldn't ordinarily think about having guitar books would have them like they have the Porsche book or the Zen Gardens book. But also, so that, you know, like the close-ups that he does of the grain and the patina that's cracking almost looks like landscape topography, you know. And, and that, that history that's contained in that close-up is what really turned me on in this book. You know, I, I, there's some, I, I don't kind of go for new guitars and you know, I love that look of something that's, 
got some history in it that even goes earlier than me. You know, I've got guitars older than me, so have you. You know, yeah. that's that's how this this book starts to look almost physiologically at the guitar, which I found very beautiful. Yeah, because no, they're, they're, they're kind of not just guitars also because they all have these wonderful, wonderful stories. Because there's another thing that comes out, Johnny, is A, how incredibly generous you are, right? I mean, all these guitars have been on this album, that one. I lent this one to so-and-so, and then so-and-so had this one. Also, yeah. what's amazing is how few guitars people go to work with. <laughs> it seems extraordinary. Right, you have to you lending Radiohead guitars because they don't seem to really have any. I know you do, all, all of the all of the Rainbow uh, the Rainbow album in Rainbows, doing, yeah, in Rainbows they, they've got they've got no guitars in the studio and they have to what, call you why? up. Is that what happened? What, what are they poor? I mean, <laughs> well, I, I think um, well, I got in there early with this idea of um, I just kind of grew up with this idea of the guitar arsenal, if you like, because the records I used to listen to and really love, they had very loud acoustics on, for example. That was an unusual thing about the Smiths records. I later found out. Although at the time, I think I was, you know, I knew when I was pushing it. Um, you know, It's lovely uh, the way you talk about that in here, by the way, the way you talk about your use of acoustics. It's really, it's really enlightening. It's gorgeous. Yeah, so, so it was a so, bit of a, um, thank you, it was a bit of a, uh, with, with regard, I didn't, a mass or collect guitars because I wanted a huge guitar collection. It was all, it was all just uh, as I went along was able to afford it. Oh, okay, that fifties thing. I'll put that fifties sound on the record. So Queenie's Dead's got some of that on it, or the three three five twelve strings that I use. I ended up using like we're talking heads and quite extensively on the last uh, on the last Smiths record. Bernard Butler's got that now. So uh, they were all as soon as I got one, I would put it to some use, and it became this. Well, you know what I ended up calling the guitar orchestra that I was very proud to have, but then it just kind of grew and grew. So I think maybe with a band like Radiohead and quite a few bands as well, I think they get attached to the instruments that they start out with and they, you know, and they go from album to album. But with some bands, it just doesn't occur to him that actually, you know, an SG, a 60s SG will make you play quite differently. And I think that's what happened with, uh, from what Ed tells me with Radiohead, I think. Tom ended up using my SG quite a lot. And I know Ed used the Les Paul, but because you have these no-nos as well. I mean, we know about these things. It's very important when you start out. They like, thou shalt not ever play. Thou shalt not be seen wearing, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, because I, I want to pull you up on this, Johnny, because I remember, because uh, it was in the 90s you started getting SGs, mm. right? When, when they, they came back. And in the 80s, you had a thing. You would not play them. No, you but, would not play an SG. You wouldn't be seeing it. And I remember Kirsty McCall bought an SG. And she said to you, Johnny, I, I don't know if this is any good. Will you have a look at it for me? Check it out. And you just went, sorry, can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think when you're young, those things are actually valid. Of you course, know, that's so important. Absolutely. But because for me, you know, there's all these associations. I talk about all these things in the book, really, the, uh, that hopefully people who aren't, guitar nerds or guitar players they don't know these things and it's it's news to them so to get back to this consideration thing another consideration i had was for people who aren't guitar freaks to be interested but and i assume that if i talk about what tremolo is or why who scotty moore is and why i use that or who tony hicks is from the hollies or whatever um that they are even though they're not guitar nerds they're interested and smart enough to go Oh, okay. Yeah, this is this yeah, is yeah, interesting yeah. stuff. So I don't get too, uh, and because of that as well, 
you don't get too techy. You don't want to turn it into a guitar magazine. You want it to be no. for the man or woman on the train or the man or woman having it in their um, on their coffee table on a Sunday afternoon, you know. But what does garden. come across what does come across is my well rehearsed excuse for why I buy guitars, which is I will write a new song if I buy a, a different guitar. Which is absolutely true. I remember to name drop here with being at an event and with, with David Gilmore, guy was there. And I and I just bought a, 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 an old Les Paul, and um, you know I was quite feeling quite upset about how much money I'd spent on it. And David said, "Yeah, but the thing is, you always write a good new song when you buy a new yeah. guitar, no matter what you spend on." And I have, you know, and and that really comes across in the book that as your mm-hmm. as your guitar collection changes, and as new guitars come into your hands, you songs jump out of them. Well, we're extremely extremely fortunate. I know we know that. I've always got this gratitude about that um, and I think the timing aside from I had the idea which you know I mentioned about Pat's photographs I kind of then got the vision of it if I'm um, if I get the idea for something I'm like this is the way it is with albums as well or songs you know I, I'm, a, I'm like a dog with a bone I just do if I feel like it's a good idea I don't let up and I saw the idea for the book in my mind and then I got the title I thought Mars Guitars well that's a no-brainer and um, but to get back to your point, I think it also happened at a time in my life when I'm sort of looking around going, wow, uh, time goes by so quickly, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, look at, just look at what I've amassed and kind of honoring, honoring it really. Uh, the, do you know, it was a funny thing was, uh, so when I did the autobiography 2016, right, uh, going into it, I thought, well, the one thing that I will get out of this is catharsis because I keep hearing that's what happens, right? When you when you do an autobiography. Well, I'm still waiting for it. It didn't happen. <laughs> and um, you know, when I saw Pete, well, I saw Pete Townsend, I was, he was asking me about that, and he said, "Well, maybe there isn't any classic Pete." So, yeah. um, but he's right. You know, I, I did that autobiography. There was no catharsis, and it was the first thing everybody asked me when I was being interviewed about it. And um, you know, I got lots of other things out of, out of the experience. But doing this book, there was a lot of there was a lot involved in it. Okay. So I've, I've been I'm very proud to say I've been involved in every single, every single minute of it, every second of it, aided and abetted by my mate, Matt Bancroft is my art director, does the sleeves with me in videos. I couldn't have done it without him, but you know, all the shooting, arranging the shoots, scheduling it, serial numbers, identifying this, that, and the other, the photography, the layout, blah, blah, blah. So I was involved in all of that. So when we planned the shoots over a couple of weeks and I would pull out my Epiphone Casino, for example, now I haven't, I'd really, I hadn't had reason to play that guitar for many, many years. And it happened to be the one I did How Sin Is Now on and a bunch of others. And when I held it, I was like, whoa, immediately went back to where I was, who I was, why I bought it. I knew how it felt to be me at that time. And, um, the songs I wrote and everything. And then that happened with so many guitars. And I come home in the evening, say to Angie, my wife was like, wow, I was really feeling quite, well, emotional really, because the catharsis happened with this book. And it's, for me, it's an interesting yeah. thing that it didn't happen cerebrally or through words, but it happened through holding these guitars and plugging them in. And all the, everything they meant to me, and I'm not just talking about the 80s, stuff in the 90s, in the 2000s, when I was working with hands and all this stuff. 
it really holding those instruments and, and hearing them and playing them, the feel of the neck, the weight, the strap, all of this stuff, the case, uh, really brought me back to who I was and what I was thinking when I got them, which sometimes is a bit scary, frankly. But it yeah. must have also, it must, yeah, but it must just take up so much time because I've literally just done the thing of getting the books out of the attic and putting them in the new library at home. And I've just did all the music books. And of course it's impossible because every book you take out of the box, you open it up. <laughs> you look exactly. for yourself. Pages, you look pages. for yourself in the index. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously not. <laughs> and, and, um, and that takes so with a guitar, it must be that times a million, you know, once <clears> you've got is, it in your lap. The thing is with, with and I, I totally get everything you're saying. The thing is with guitars, and, you know, you do say how different makes and brands of guitars give you different expression and give you different ways of approaching songwriting. That's for sure. The thing is, though, the, the guitarist tends to dominate the guitar in that you put any guitar in, Jeff Beck's hands in you know when he was around he would sound like Jeff Beck put any guitar in Dave Gilmore's hand he would sound like David Gilmore put David Gilmore's guitar in someone else's hand it won't sound like David Gilmore so it's that balance between the guitar and you I mean I don't know how much what you feel about that well, Do you that's, feel, that's entirely true Gary because that there's conversation a, there's a story that keeps coming up because the the red 355 that I've, I've got on the cover of this book uh, is quite well known i'm sort of associated i think with is that the one that seymour stein bought the seymour yeah stein one, so yeah. there's a story that comes up about that um which is yeah seymour got it me and then the very first thing i did when went, you did that were you thinking you're just thinking like this is just a classic rock and roll story isn't it this is something i've got in the back pocket for life not oh, yeah, at the guitar not that i got seymour time. stein to buy me <laughs> well for, do you know what guy the answer to that is in all honesty if i look back now in the smiths every day was like that yeah Really, I, I wasn't thinking this is a great story because every day yeah, is yeah, a yeah. great story, really. Right, you know, yeah, I was yeah. like, wow. But to come back to what Gary was saying, it's quite interesting because when I've had to tell that story, or when I've told that story, it's a couple of things. It's about, yes, we know that some instruments have songs in them. I mean, it just is. We know we've done it. And that in that case of 355, uh, heaven knows, immediately played, heaven, you know, I, I don't know really can hear this, but. Or whether it's oh, and it, it normally goes off the music on Zoom, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, has it gone off now? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. never mind. Why is that? What's I don't guitar? know. Hold it's the guitar up, let's see the guitar. Well, well, I'm playing this. Okay, so this is my okay, so this is my uh Jaguar signature Jag, right? So, my point was, um, that when so if I was to play that 355, um, and I show you those chords, those quite jazzy chords that came out as soon as I started to play. Um, you would go, oh, yeah, I see how the guitar would suggest that. It's a little jazzy and it's, it's a, it looks like it's a big guitar and all of that. However, there's parts in that song that are me imposing, doing exactly what you say. I've only realised it because I've had to play it a couple of times in demonstration. There's, a, there's an arpeggio line at the top, which has no business being on a 355, frankly. So... It, it's a whole load of things that happen in the amazing yeah. kind of, um, you know, the, the whatever that reaction that happens between a musician and an, and an instrument, uh, you know, to get cosmic about it, that happens when people are just novices as well. 
it's fantastic. People who are just getting their technique together can impose their style, if you like. It's fantastic. Mm. That's why some of those great people who sort of play in a kind of amateurish way, if you like, with some of those garage bands from the 60s or whatever, or some great indie bands, their limitations are what makes them interesting. Do, well, do that's you... it, isn't it? There's, there's lots of types of music which have basically come about from someone trying to, trying to play a style of music and actually not being able to do it and in the process inventing well, another one. I deliberately got my Rickenbacker as my first backup guitar when, when uh, I first got my, my first publishing deal. Uh, my first proper, okay, in the Smith, like, this is my main guitar. I deliberately got a Rickenbacker because I knew it would make me play in a certain way. But what's interesting is the great thing that you say in the book is actually how much of that Smith stuff is a Les Paul. But you're absolutely right that we are so... But you're right, the Rickenbacker became fixed in one's head. And so, oh, it's jangly Johnny. No, I know yeah. this is something you hated. Mm-hmm. I think because that was because the birds kind of connection. Yeah, you know. but it, but, but you're, you're right. It's an a, absolutely a perception. You can easily go back and listen to that and go, well, yeah. But, so, so the obvious question is, Johnny, what is the guitar that you found Johnny Marr on? When did you actually think, now is the moment I know I'm not copying anyone else, I am me, and this has made it happen? i say there's been two major moments for that. It sounds a bit grandiose, but without a doubt, one was the Rickenbacker, and then I had exactly the same kind of experience. If, in fact, more so in 2005 when I picked up Isaac Brock's Jaguar, uh, wow. because, because by then I knew what I was... I really worked myself out and I'd also I'd, I'd had it projected at me. I've been very, very fortunate to have it projected at me from fans and the press. And, and, and more importantly, when I've gone to sessions and people wanted me to do a certain, play a certain way, I know I'll, I'm supposed to sound, right? You're and, your own AI. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, the Jag, so that moment I talk about in the book where, you know, it's uh, whatever, late at night in Portland, Oregon, and I'm jet-lagged and playing with Isaac. First time we'd met, he's got, he's got a, doing a bit of performance art. Just me and him, he's got a, a jug of wine on the floor. I've never seen a jug of wine before. I've, what, what, and he's, it's half empty, by the way. You know, I thought, what's this, 1936 in you know, Louisiana <laughs> or something? And, and he's got like a scheme. He's got a goggles on and a weird flying hat. And he's... You're pretending that's normal. Yeah, <laughs> well, and then I, well, people who know Isaac just do that every day. It's amazing, right, right, brilliant right. to be around. But it was a surreal moment, and I, I, uh, my Fender Telecaster wasn't competing with his. I don't know whether you've ever seen those Super Six amps, those Fender Super Sixes. That, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, talk about monsters! Uh, so I picked up his Jag, and when I started playing it, I knew that something very important was happening in my life. Normal, regular, well-balanced people will go, that's a bit over the top. But because it's my, well, I was right. Because, what, 17 years later, I've played nothing else on stage other than the Jags, and now and it's got my name on, and Fender that's just amazing. keeps making them and making them because it's about... I've always been worried about the vulnerability of those buttons, you know. That's... Yeah, but that's the first thing I changed, Gary. Due diligence, mate. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So had you literally not picked up a Jaguar before that? I had. I had one and I didn't really get along with it. And I just, I'd right. done that thing like, you know, file under, not me. And it just was, yeah. it was the only one that of his that wasn't, that I didn't need a tetanus to play. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so I picked that up and, um, but actually, so what I'm Gary was, I fell in love with that 63 Jag. Absolutely thought it was perfection. But then as I played it day in, day out, I started to notice what I, I, I call unwanted conditions. And one of those was the switches that switch on and off, which is why the grunge bands say, used to put gaffer tape over those things to stop and stop and switching up. You know why right, those, right, right. why those kill this could switch people off, but why those kill switches <laughs> actually exist on guitars. I think it's a great, great story. It's um it's mostly because um in the fifties and sixties when musicians were doing radio dates with orchestras on the radio, quite often those radio stations were near power lines and near trains like in Chicago and New York. And you would get insane RF interference. And if you were oh, sitting right. there, if you weren't coming in until bar 156, you needed to kill the guitar before you came in. So you, bar 155, you switch the thing on. Yeah. Of course, in, in this day and age, for the last 50 years, 40 years, it's, that's been completely unnecessary. So I got rid of that. And I changed out. Once I started to break through and just make some changes on the Jag, and it took me, to, believe it or not, it was two years working on it. And I was touring all that time, and I was you changing these prototypes and changing the pickups and all of this stuff. Was this with in relation? Were you in relationship with Fender then? Were they doing that with you? The truth, to be honest, Fender very kindly left me to it because my friend Bill Puplet, who's in Harrow, uh, Harrow and Weald, he's been working with me on my guitar since the eighties, and he's done stuff with Jimmy Page, and he's done John Paul Jones, and all kinds of stuff. He's been Bill's been around since the sixties, and um, he he is a genius. So. I said to Fender, look, lead me to it. And if I need some help with a neck or whatever, let me build this Jag and uh, get obsessive about it. And then I'll deliver you what I think is the perfect Jaguar for me. And they've been absolutely true to the word. You know, every single one in any shop in Sydney or in the, you know, uh, in wherever uh, is exactly the same as mine. The dimensions and everything about it is the same as mine. And I'm very, very proud of it. But that definitely was. That Jag makes me play really like me. You know, it's not just a vanity project. And in fact, what it was, was when we finished it, Bill, who works with me on it, as I say, he's quite a, a sort of fairly laid back guy. And I was playing high volume. He said, oh, he goes, it's, uh, it sounds like a Ricky, plays like a Fender, and it sounds like a, a Gretsch too. So a Ricky and a Gretsch plays like a Fender, which is a good assessment really of my kind of my sound it would have saved me an awful lot of money back in the 80s yeah 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah he would have had a much thinner book though what, what i like <laughs> about 
<laughs> but I also like about the book is just your journey into into guitars and the inspiration other guitar players have had in your life, and the the fact that Bolin was your first love, and it was my first love too. Yeah, and that so the Les Paul was obviously what he was famous for. Yeah, but I thought for years that he had a gold top, but it, in the same way that I thought Mick Ronson had a gold top, but neither of them had gold top Les Pauls. They. They'd, both of them had cleaned all the paint off the front of standards or one actually one was a custom which was mix and marks was a custom and he took the paint off of made it look gold but what was confusing about marks is he had a custom neck this is this is geeky i know, I know that, I hope yeah. people don't turn off that it was this amazing bastard guitar you know, yeah comp, but it it just as a kid it was it was the b-side of i think it was hot love was the b-side was life's a gas and they had a little it was taken up by a whole picture of him and Mickey in it. Yeah, that was Je- yeah, that was Jeepster. Yeah, that was the first Jeepster, thing, Jeepster. first thing I ever bought. No, you're right. It, but that um, uh, now I could I, I could talk about guitar all day, and I think I probably have so and all night um, several times. It's, it, that was like the holy grail because it, those things are see what you demonstrated there is this you know obsession and fascination and um, detail. And people are like that about motorbikes and about cars. And so uh, mm-hmm. why should guitar players be any different? But those nuance and that obsession and attention to detail and fascination, I hope has come out in, in the book and in, in the interview I did with Martin Kelly, because he, Martin, as we know, you know, he's an expert uh, on mm-hmm. all, all things modern guitars or the last guitar culture. So as well as him being my mate, I, I thought he'd be exactly the right guy to pull, kind of pull stuff out of me. You know, another really satisfying thing that happened during the making of the book. So I, I didn't realize all this text and stories and just all of that life story stuff was actually going to come out. I just hadn't thought of that. It was about making these beautiful photographs. And then in the process of it, these things came out. But it's been nice thinking about some of the guitar players uh, and, and kind of honoring some of the guitar players who influenced me and have influenced us, I'd say, who don't usually you know, go under the radar a little bit. People like Chris Bedding and Bill Nelson. Yeah. Tony Hicks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, great to read about Bill Nelson when he wrote, because you clocked he was playing an SG, uh, the Yamaha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Which uh, I could never see you with, by the way. Could never, ever see well, you Well, funny enough, you say that, because Steve Norman, our, on our first album, in fact, our first two albums where Steve Norman played the electric guitar before he moved on to playing saxophone, he played a Yamaha SG. It was the guitar of the moment, and it was because of Bill Nelson. Yeah, well... There's all, as I say, you know, there's all that nuance because the thing, the bottom line with those was like McGeoch was like the man for me and and, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 and, yeah, and Bill Nelson. Those guys could already play. This is the thing that guitar players know, but they couldn't not play when the Pistols formed and then suddenly they could play like demons. What were they doing before that? Well, they were playing, <laughs> they were playing, sun, all of them were playing Sunshine of Your Love and All Right uh, yeah. Now, right? And some of them were stretching out and doing, you know, advanced stuff, but... Uh, they were really good players, and the politics and fashion of guitar culture dictated that. Well, the Les Paul was, you know, well, let's say rockist, other than in Steve Jones's hands. Mm-hmm. But you wanted a great instrument, so that Yamaha SG was really a beautiful instrument. So it ticked quite a lot of boxes. For, uh, probably for... quite cheap as well, weren't they? Japanese guitars were still cheaper then. Well, uh, aren't they then? Yeah, uh, I. I mean, I disliked them intensely at the time, but as years have gone on, it is handy that they, they're quite cheap, but they're amazing instruments. And they sound like you go for that. It's again, we come back to that associative thing. You put it on and you want, you just want to do the banshees or you want yeah. to do, 
or you want to do Bill Nelson's Red Noise or, you know, whatever it might be. You have yeah, yeah. you have this associative thing. I mean, a more pertinent example for people might be like the the Gibson 295, the big gold Gibson Scotty Moore. When, you, when people pick that up, I mean, it's a real diverse guitar, but you end up just trying to play rockabilly on it. Everyone wants, you know, you end up trying to play yeah, yeah. that. But there was that move. There was that move into 50s kind of, because 50s culture had come back at the beginning of the 80s. Everyone, you know, there was people like Bow Wow Wow were playing them. And, uh, Correct. And well, punk was 50s. Billy Duffy. Was 50s, you know, yeah. Billy Duffy. You know, I mean, so I, that that's why you we wanted it, wasn't it? You wanted that twangier sound. Well, I the start of the book, actually, uh, is it starts off with me in my bedroom with this Les Paul standard that I got, which that in itself has got a story because it came back to me only a few years ago which is amazing. I never, ever thought I'd lay eyes on that again. But the, the, then the next one is that when I formed the Smiths, because of this thing we're talking about, this 50s culture, remember it was 82. And the cool thing was, you know, Matthew Ashman, he was great in Bow Wow. He's playing a Falcon and Theatre of Hay, and it's all in the air. And, you know, Edwin is up, he's playing. And Edwin's the quiff is back. Yeah, well, and Edwin's, I was, was a little more on my vibe in that. I, I was sort of doing the King's Road thing as I was walking around, you know, as a person, but I also love the Velvets. So Edwin's got the Gretsch, really. He's thinking Lou Reed, you know. So Gretsch's are back and Les Paul's are out and Strats are definitely out for, you know, in, in alternative music, and et cetera. All these politics are all very, very important when you're young. But yeah, oh yeah. luckily for me, the book sort of starts with me training in the Les Paul for the Gretsch when I formed the Smiths, but because I couldn't afford a, well, I mean, a, a Falcon. Yeah, it's not, it's not a Gretchy Gretch. I ended up getting this, what's called a Super Axe, and it, it strangely cut sort of space age, and it had an amazing sound because it had a built-in compressor. And it's, uh, there's no other, no one else. Oh yeah, well, it. I was going to ask about that. What was, yeah. Actually, Townsend played one of those for briefly, because who's next is a Gretch. It's a country gentleman. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, is it a 6120? Is it? 6120, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which... Or was it 6135? No, it's just, I think it's okay. 61. But Johnny, just tell, tell that story, how that guitar came back to you. Yeah, because also I want to know about the effects. Well, yeah, well, the effects, well, there's a phaser, which is just really stupid, you know. You just sound like, it sounds like some, like, 70s Jerry Anderson, Jerry and Sylvia Anderson soundtrack. <laughs> um, but what, no, I traded it in in 82, uh, just before I formed the Smiths. Uh, as part of the whole new chapter. Uh, yeah, a guy's holding it up there. And um, that Les Paul. And then a friend of mine who's a guitar geek found it in a record shop, uh, this up north somewhere, up in the wilds or in, in Yorkshire. Uh, 2017, man. And they knew it was yours in the shop? No, he knew it was mine because he's he been wor- working me, with me for years. Yeah, because I changed <clears> the, <throat> the, the tuners and the, uh, there was a, there's a little hole where I moved the pick guard, and um, he'd identified it, and that was beautiful. Um, I just, I just had a similar event in that the 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 black Stratocaster that I played on stage at Live Aid went missing, strangely enough, in the '90s, and which you know was a I was a bit sad about. A few months ago, it appeared in a shop up in um, near Nottingham, and uh, and I just bought it back for myself. Oh, congratulations. That's amazing that you were able to <laughs> yeah. get it. That's well, it. someone someone saw it and photographed it and, and, and sent me the photograph. And, and, and I said, he said, is this your guitar? It was. 
That, yeah. I mean, the chances of that, I mean, I've got a few of those stories in the book that, uh, again, when I started the original idea for the book, which was, you know, riding around on a tour bus uh, about five years ago, I didn't realise that all of this stuff was going to come out. And um, now that it's out, it's a little bit bemusing, really. When a guitar was stolen off the stage of the Scala in 2000 and, uh, uh, was it two, uh, 2000, 2001? From a, a fan or a guy got up off this, got up out of the audience when the band were breaking the gear down and just took my main guitar, my SG, the one that I just was going nuts about wow. and um, just walked out the front door with it. But the amazing thing is that, and that was a whole episode in itself. And the next day I went around to Bert Janchi's for some solace and Bert listened to me very sagely and uh, sort of listened to my tale of woe. I was quite upset. And then he said to me, uh, have you never had a guitar stolen? And I was like, oh, thanks Bert. Um, <laughs> but uh, 10 years later, I was in Toronto playing with the Cribs and my manager called me and said, hey, uh, there's a detective who's been assigned to work at in King's Cross and he's taken it upon himself. He's called and he's a fan and he's just gone, that guitar oh. car have just disappeared. Oh. And so I had to fill in, I fill out another crime report, thought nothing of it. Hang on, it. I, I could see a box set. I'm going to go and write a box set after this. It came back. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. The, the, the guy found it, the, the detective found it. And the guy who'd stolen it still had it, and it had been yeah, broken. Meanwhile, there's there's nine unsolved murders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but this is this is beautiful because Frampton lost his guitar, didn't he? For quite that's a long time. that's the most extraordinary story of, of what, all. What was that? Remind me, stories. I can't remember. It was well, um, it uh, it basically went down in a plane crash yeah. in the jungle in Central America somewhere, and it was clearly gone. And then somehow, yeah, I don't know. Somehow yeah. through. It turned up 40 years later. Some, that is amazing. How, well, well, Rory Gallagher's yeah. famous strap, Rory Gallagher's famous, very, you know, it's very the famous. The first knackered guitar we ever saw. Is it the first? We, the, I remember the first time you ever saw a guitar that wasn't kind of well, be, pristine. Well, because yeah. he played every since being, I think he was 11 when he got it, and uh, he played for years with it, ate and slept and... Uh, with with that guitar, but also and drank, in, yeah. in, in the late seven in the late sixties, <laughs> it was stolen and um, and it went missing for three weeks. And it was and it was on a crime show in Ireland on the television. And someone whoever had stolen it obviously lost the nerve. But anyway, it, it it was found in a ditch, and he got it back. And that was years wow. ago. I mean, that was when that's he was like, a young young man. That's so that's that, like the FA Cup. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the dog sniffed it out. I, I, I remember my mum bought, my dad bought a fur coat. Well, it was a fake fur coat from 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 the local pub where we lived, and uh, the, the, he gave it to my mum, and he was very happy he'd done that. And that weekend, um, it was on Police Five. <laughs> <laughs> so we he hid it under the floorboards of our house. Because <laughs> you're doing a thing. I heard you on Radio Four the other day. Or you're doing a thing on great sporting crimes. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. They, that's uh, that's you should a, be doing guitar, great stolen guitars. I should. <laughs> yeah, that was a voiceover thing I did. I thought, um, Gary, you might appreciate this. Um, the listeners are going to have to use their imagination. Okay. Oh uh, my God, God the Hagstrom. Oh, uh, the Hagstrom! Exactly yeah, it's it's the Roxy music for your pleasure, isn't it? Yeah. Brian Ferry's holding it in the gate gatefold sleeve. I mean, I, I am so. It's probably the guitar I'm the most jealous of that you own. 
It's lost yeah. its blue patina from the original photograph, it, though, hasn't it, it? It has, and also, I think the blue the photograph was probably touched up a little. So I it think was, it was yeah. extremely blue, but it has. But um, yeah, Brian oh. ga- Brian gave me that for uh, Will Sargent's very jealous as well that I've got that. And um, oh um, my god, I think I think pretty much everyone in the world. <laughs> very jealous that you've got that, Johnny. Frankly, and, and that's 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 one of Niles now Rogers's. Oh, Jesus! With the mirror plate, it, scratch plate. Yeah, yeah. One of, he gave he gave me that in New York. Wow, um, it looks like it's been used. Did he play any particular tracks with that? Do you know? Uh, um, I don't know, but um, let's say it's good times, right? It's um, it's not the hit maker, but it's what it's not the hit maker. Oh, because he's got the hit maker, isn't he? Yeah. But Johnny, that's sorry. Go on, go on, grab that. What was that well, you were going to grab? I just well, this is this is. A bit of a treasure. This is uh, this is Bert Janty's. Oh my God, Yamaha. Martin! Oh, it's Yamaha. It was Yamaha. Oh, oh, there it goes. Zoom just cut it out. It's um, so weird how to text music. But but let's just talk about that because this is something that's really interesting about you as a guitar player. Your 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 sort of three favourite guitarists: Bert Janch, you know, acoustic folky, you know, James Williamson, you know. Iggy Pop fills every bit of the space with with his with his noise, and then Nile Rodgers. Mm. You can't get three more diverse guitarists, but they they made you, didn't they? They did. It all makes sense to me, and actually, I understand, uh, and I've had to think about the uh, eccentricity of that, or the, how unusual that is. But actually, it makes perfect sense because those guys have got it. Aside from John McLaughlin. Those guys have got it all covered because, the, mm-hmm. you know, the thing with uh, James Williamson and, and Raw Power, it's so, it's like the cover, it's like Iggy on the cover. It's so attitude it's uh, so catchy, it's dangerous, uh, but it's also got a fair amount of technique. You know, I always describe him as having, you know, all the attitude of Keith Richards and all the technique of, uh, no, all the I don't know gets right. All the attitude, of, yeah, Keith Richards and the technique of Jimmy Page, you know, yeah. and um, so both those things together are a pretty lethal combination. And then Bert's arpeggio, um, but Bert wasn't as precise as as my, people might imagine. Um, he he played really quite Bernard Butler used to say violently on the acoustic, whereas Nick Drake was incredibly precise. Nick Drake to what Bert was doing and really was precise. Yeah. Bert was very, very loose, but that arpeggio thing where you're able to play so the guitar sounds like three things at once. So that's covered. So you've got you've got the kind of cool attitude of James and then you've got the the facility of and being at a place so it sounds like three guitars of Bert. And then you've got for me with Niall, it's all about the left hand. You know, I mean I've said this a couple times, but people fixate with now Rogers, quite understandably, with the his rhythm playing, it's so identifiable. Yeah, yeah. But it's what he was doing. It's those beautiful McCoy Tyner like chord changes. I would say with Niall, it's it's you know, you hear his, you know, yeah. it, you, you know, it is you hear his heart in his left hand, you hear his soul in the right hand. What's interesting, you saying that about those three players is it's very easy for to, to come to later in life and say that's all right and decide what you are, but. Going back, and I was listening to some early stuff this morning, and you're absolutely right, right in that it, it was all there right from right from the word go. I mean, this night has opened my eyes, for instance. It's pure Nile, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it was always there. Yeah, well, it's one of those things where it's a bit chicken and egg because um, I was drawn to that because it kind of spoke to me. Those chord changes really, you know, uh, yeah, it spoke to me. And I think 
that's the thing with inspiration. Um, I think you have to be connected to it for it to make such an impact on you in the first place. It can't just be like, oh, I've heard this pe- person and now I'm dazzled by it. I think it has to speak to something that where you want to go, you know. So I had that, again, to come back to James Williamson uh, with um, – with, there's a song on Raw Power called Gimme Danger. And I was already, the reason I've discovered that was because my mate was Billy Duffy said, I was writing a song and he said, oh, it sounds like Gimme Danger. And I was like, well, what's that? But I was already going down that road. So with Burr and with Niall and with uh, James, it was like those guys were like these older brothers I didn't know who were shining a light along this path and saying, there you go. That's how it felt. Uh, but was it, was then, it, you know, I had to try to learn how to do it. Was it nerve-wracking playing with Bert himself, you know, because he's, he's so, he was so proficient? Yeah, it was. But he's beautiful. He was exactly every time, well, not every time we played, because we played on stage a couple of times, um, a few times. But when Bert and I used to play, it was in his front room. And we'd start off improvising and two hours would go by without stopping. There's a photograph in the book of us doing that. And that's when I was a kid, what? I thought him and John Renbord would be doing. And the stuff of, there was only a couple of players that I actually, uh, uh, with a record player and played along regularly with. I used to work out some songs because me and my band wanted to do, you know, do anything you want to do, or we wanted to do an only one song or whatever it was. I used to work out the track, but sit and be taken away for a few hours by someone. There was only really, really Bert who did that for me. Because I mean, the hard thing is knowing if he's got, got a, if he's got a ch- uh, some auto uh, alternative tuning, you, you had to work that out too, didn't you? Yeah, well then, well then, you know, the accidental mistakes that happen come into play then. But why I mentioned that was that when we um, when we started playing regularly, Bert and I, he made a point of saying that he was, you know, I could follow him or anticipate what he was doing. It came down to playing along with those records and learning that bit of his playing. You know, I sort of. It was amazing. It was a little like automatic rewind to the 14-year-old me and what I kind of was imagining he was doing, you know. Folk music, guy. Yeah. See, folk music. is. is yeah, we, yeah. we had David folk Johnson music. on and we were talking about, you know, that, that great folk revival that happened in the 70s. Who was, it was the guy, from, the banjo player from the Dubliners was, I can't remember the name. Hmm. Yeah, no banjo ever turned your head, John. <laughs> well, 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 Modest Master, were, they kind of pioneered the... Uh, Neo banjo that came, you know, uh, was um, came back in the. I don't know how I feel about that. You never heard me. Alt ban, alt banjo. <laughs> for, for people who don't know Johnny, I think you should just talk to tell us about the uh, the Noel Gallagher gift, and because I mean, the guy was mentioning earlier how generous you are, but but no, no, yeah. starting Noel off and inspiring him, and you know what you do and what you've done many times is pass the baton, uh, but literally yeah. the guitar. Well, I think we'll lend someone a guitar and they change the pickups, is a bit. No, so look, the thing with that, I mean, it's been told so many different ways. And my brother, I won't go into all the details, but my brother introduced me to Noel because he, he knew Noel and he thought that Noel was pretty cool. And my, my brother's a very discerning guy. He's got good taste. And for him to say, well, you want to check this guy out means a lot. So um, anyway, uh, Noel and I met and uh, we have a cup of tea and I just liked him. I mean, no one, no one knew, you know, could anticipate that he was going to be, you know, a worldwide rock superstar. Well, actually he probably could. And yeah. um, 
But uh, fair enough. But I, he was a young guy, and I, re- and I liked him, and we had a lot in common, funny enough. I mean, all right, he was a young guy on the dole, but he was, I don't know, he's a Mancunian Irish, and, uh, you know. Are you a red, though? You're a red, aren't you, Johnny? No, I'm a big no, uh, big. Oh, uh, are you? We beat you last yeah. week, the other yeah. weekend. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. Enjoy. <laughs> it's, going well. it's all going so well. I know. So anyway, I liked him just on a human level. I thought he was a good guy, but I could see um, I, I could see he was on a mission. And anyway, I went to see Oasis, and they, you know, everyone says this kind of thing, but it, honestly, it was 14 people and a dog. They were on at 7 o'clock. I think hmm. they were on third on the bill to Molly Halfhead were... Um, were headlining. Do you remember them? No. And, um, God. And, no. And, Mo- Molly Hatchet. Uh, and um, <laughs> so they were on at seven o'clock. It was still light outside. I went to see him, 14 people, and they were all their mates and girlfriends and stuff. And um, and then we were speaking on the phone, and he, he asked me what I thought. And I said, well, you know, brilliant. Yeah, great. But you take a, such a long time tuning up in between numbers. And he had one of those, um, what they call stroboscope. The strobo tuner, yeah, the con strobo. Uh, Which was his pride and joy, and he had his Epiphone. And in between numbers, some numbers, he would tune up, and it was taking him a long time to tune, and I just pointed that out. I said, well, the one thing I think would be better is if you hurry up in between songs and you need a backup guitar. And he said, well, it's all right. Quite rightly, he said to me, that's all right for you to say. You know, I'm on the dole (laughs) living in India house and you're Johnny Marr, whatever. And uh, I went, yeah, good point. So then he went in the studio. I sent a few guitars his way to use on the session. And um, I was like, he's going to love this Les Paul. I thought I couldn't give him something crappy. This stuff wasn't cool. And I was able to do it. So um, I sent off the Les Paul and um, then he started writing on it. And to be fair, I immediately gave it him. It wasn't like does this you know, cre- this things crept into the story that like I loaned no the guitar this, and he, this wasn't, he didn't give it me back. I gave this it wasn't him. a bad. This is a no. really. I mean, I would imagine that hold, held a good price anyway before it was even Johnny Mars or Noel Gallagher's. This is a fifty-eight or something. No, Les it's, Paul? A, it's a nineteen-sixty no. Les Paul that I got from the 60. Who. So it it was one that I got off John Entwistle, and uh, I'd done Panic on it. I'd done London. I'd done a whole load of Smith stuff on it, uh, but I was really happy for him. I, to have it, I had a load of him, you know, and um, uh, as I said, I just couldn't give him something crappy. So uh, he, he wrote Slide Away on it, and then I, next thing, what he started playing that as his main guitar. So it was his main guitar, so I just said, you can have it. But, but the funny bit is that um, some people might already know this, but a few months later, by this time, Oasis, were on my management, uh, got a call from someone in the office one morning and said, oh, hey, Johnny, listen, um, got a bit of a problem Oasis got into a fight on stage last night and it wasn't with each other. It was with the audience in Newcastle. <laughs> and I was like, yes, uh, what about it? And he said, well, the Les Pauls got damaged. And I thought she was phoning to say, I apologize for that. But she said, you haven't got another one, have you? So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I ran into the studio and I thought, well, I mean, they had a gig, you know, they had gigs. So, I thought, well, I can't replace it with something crappy. So, uh, so I gave him my, my, my 73 Les Paul. I absolutely didn't mind. You know, he was my mate and he was in a place and he, he was you and he used it. What was great though is that at that time, it's amazing the way life turns out, isn't it? Sometimes that, but I wouldn't have foresaw that 20 years later, I would be doing an overdub on an Oasis album and I was stood listening, just 
at deafening volumes stood at the, the mixing desk, hearing it for the first time. And Noel's tech, who'd been my tech, just passes me the Les Paul that I'd given him 20 years earlier. Uh, that was a nice bit of a closure, I think. Uh... Yeah, so it's gone to a great home, and I'm, I'm really pleased that, uh, that Noel's got right at the 11th hour doing the book. Um, so many really nice little prizes happening in the making of this book. But right at the 11th hour, he, he texted me and he said, oh, listen, do you remember that Strat I got from you? I've just remembered that's, that's the Wonderwall guitar and Don't Look Back in Anger. Do you want me to, wow. do you want me to send it up for the book? So I said, sure. Uh, I'm waiting for him to say I can have it, but... Uh, <laughs> he's not as generous as you. Yeah. Uh, no, no, do you know what? He's given me, he's given me a really cool... It's, he, he's given me a really cool like, acoustic. I, I wanted to mention... You and Hank Marvin should go and commiserate yeah, about, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, about yeah. guitars. Bruce Welsh has got the red strap, which is actually Cliff's. Oh, I don't mind all of that stuff. I love that Bernard Butler's got yeah. the Smith 335 because it, it, he's got loads of use. I just love that he's got it. It's great. you know. He's, and he's very he, nice in the book. He writes a lovely piece in the book. How he's yeah. really just, you know, also, he, it's still yours. Yeah. He said a lovely thing but because I, I, put, a, I put, put your book up on Instagram when you sent it to me. And, um, and I, I actually said, I was quite pleased. I, I said this guitar porn seems too vulgar a term. This is more like high-end, luthiesque erotic literature. <laughs> and uh, and Bert, Bernard wrote a really lovely comment underneath. He said, yeah, it's like, almost like I'd be more worried about the book than the guitar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I just want to med- mention a great luthier that you talk about, which is uh, Roger Giffen. I, I was literally, I was on that page, Gary. Look, I, that I, yeah. That's the, yeah. <clears throat> I played Giffen in the 80s, actually, late 80s. I've, got, I've still got my Giffen. I, 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 it was a great guitar. Was it like a Telecaster shape? It's a Stratocaster shape. Red. Oh, okay, yeah. He met, he, I'll he send made, you a picture. Yeah, he's now in Portland, Oregon, which is my old kind of stomping ground. You know, uh, it's a small world. You know, people people's paths cross. Uh, again, I hadn't thought about how, you know, in those early years in the 80s, I would go into uh, well, New King's Road guitars. Uh, well, now it's New King's Road guitars, and it was Earl's Court guitars at one time. And I would bump yeah. into people, you know, and um, and everyone, you know, it was like, um, it was dead cool. It wasn't necessarily, you know, just super famous people, but it was really, it was really nice to, you know, meet Gary Moore, you know, he was really sweet. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> as I say, it's, it, it's a small world. We all know someone who knows someone. And- but talk about this Giffen guitar. This is not what we were talking about, perception and looks of things. I remember, because th- this was quite, a, you used this a lot, right, early 80s. Knew that. that green telecaster, quite, yeah. People, that green telecaster, yeah. But again, it's just a percent. That's quite a muso-y looking guitar for you, don't you think, for the time? Um, the fact that it's green and... Well, the fact that it's green... The humbucker and everything. I think, yeah, but I think you would have had to... You would know that because you've sort of a bit more nuanced. But I think people who were following me, uh, say, like, you know, a kid starting out in Dundee who was a big Smiths fan just would have seen this really dazzling, unusual guitar. Yeah. They wouldn't have thought... Emerald. That, they wouldn't have thought that looks like a PRS or anything. They just went... Because <laughs> that's that. Because I used it uh, when the band were blowing up, uh, I got I get asked about that guitar as much as any other guitar, really. The green telly. And, right. and I was determined, There's a, again, to get back to the abstract thing, I really was determined to have a full page that is just the back green. Bit because that, yeah, that is it is amazing. That is amazing. Beautiful shot. I mean, that 
That you're right. I mean, that could be a picture of like of the Amazon rainforest. That's right. From a plane, couldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. From a satellite. Yeah. yeah. No. It's actually... What about amps, Johnny? Did you have the same collecting collecting bug over amplifiers? Yeah, I did, but um, space. I, I did a lot more room. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. Well, no, I think I'm a bit more pragmatic. Fender's your thing, right? Fender. Yeah, but you know, I, I, the answer is yes because. I've got to have a really good AC30, you know, but you just got to, you know, and if you're blessed enough to be in the situation to get one. And also they just weren't that as expensive, all of this stuff in the eighties. Yeah. You know, I mean, we are, we are very privileged, but you could pick that stuff up as we all know. I mean, I've, I've always said this, like vintage guitars weren't called vintage guitars. They were just old guitars. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they become in a way they became popularized like a lot of, things like leather jackets or quiff haircuts or bike boots or the, you know yeah. the the 80s did fetishized did this thing yeah reappropriated post postmodern all of these things. well there was a thing isn't there that alan rogan our beloved alan yeah. rogan and um, pete townsend's old tech. Know, and, and yeah and phil taylor you know david gilmore's tech between them but kind of invented this thing of the vintage guitar this i found i find interesting and um, this blew my mind a little bit so the great, late, great Alan Rogan, we all know, he was, I talk about him in the book, you know, he's a good friend of ours, mine, and he, yeah. he, he anyway, he started working for The Who, I think in 75, maybe 74, and he first started working for John. And he, when he and John used to come back from America and say, look, I've got two orange 6120s. At that time, it was the same as people saying, I've got two Macintosh laptops. You're like, why do you need two? Because back then, the vibe, if you think of Kossoff or Ronson or Rory Gallagher, the 70s pre-punk guitar players, the whole vibe was that you were faithful to that one instrument and you had a backup if you, if you had a string break. The idea that why would you have five of the same ones? And it was because of Alan's, he grew up, little boy in Newcastle, literally face up against the window of the guitar, guitar shops. And um, he and Entwistle going around America on those Who tours, doing that thing Ian Hunter talks about in Dara's Rock and Roll store, start buying these in these cheap guitar uh, pawn shops, buying these guitars really cheap. And they were literally bringing them back to London and everyone was going, well, yeah, but why do you need three, three, three fives? Why do you need that? Well, well Townsend made, made a virtue out of it, didn't he? Stuck numbers on all of, the, on all of those Les Pauls. Well, that was for, that was for tuning. Yes, but, for but there was a sense yeah, of like... Here, look, I've got more than one. You know? Well, well yeah. funny enough, you know, as kids, you know, in our lives growing up, we all have a moments for that we when we stayed up too late and saw a, a horror film and it's stuck in our psyche for years. <laughs> Pete doing that took me a long time to get over. When I first saw that, I had very mixed feelings about that. Because I yeah, very, very mixed feelings about it. Because I was a maybe 13-year-old boy living in the provinces who, who just, the idea of owning one was unimaginable. So seeing someone yeah. with 11 was pre <laughs> pretty weird. But I played one of them about, it might have even been 11, uh, last year with Pearl Jam at Hyde Park. And wow. do, you think, do you think I was happy to be playing it? Shit, yeah, of course I was. <laughs> uh, I love that. Well, Ron, can I just tell you a sweet Alan Rogan story, by the way, while we're on him? Sure, Johnny. of course. 
which was when I went to Alan's uh, memorial and on the programme of events, on the back, it had the Alan Rogan joke, which is the famous joke, which is uh, what do Keith Richards, Pete Towns and Eric Clapton all have in common? They all work for Alan Rogan. <laughs> and um, Kerry, <laughs> Alan's daughter, told me, I, I said, I was great, you got the joke. And she, she said, I got it from Rock on Tours. I got it from when Johnny was on Rock on Tours. Oh, we told the joke, she hadn't heard it before, and that ended up, at, so that's... Uh, he's an important guy. Yeah, very, very, yeah. we've all got the Alan Rogan stories, but I, yeah, the, uh, this book wouldn't have happened, certainly in the way it has without him. We, 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 should, we, yeah. we know that. We should plug your new album. You've got a, you've got a great oh. Stiss album come out, right? right? I have. Yes, 10th anniversary. Yeah. Tell us. Well, Go on. Well, that came about because my manager uh, about 18 months ago said to me, do not go back in the studio and do a new record. And um, I was a little, well, excuse me, we'll see about that. That's what I do, you know. <laughs> but he, know, he knows me and he knows that's what I would, was, was uh, revving up to do. And he said, no, 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 you know, it's been, it will have been 10 years since the first solo record and you should mark it. Uh, it should be a demarcation and you put out whatever, 14, 15 singles. And some of them done really well on the radio and everything. And, you know, do it as a sort of celebration and everything. So uh, I think he was right because um, when we put it together and I had to really, it was only when I had to listen to the, because I still listen to the test pressings. I do, again, you know. Oh, I do my due diligence. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> so I sat very late at night listening out for the pops and crackles and all that. And because I was listening to it so objectively, as each track came along, because I changed the, it, it's not in, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not in uh, chronological order. I put it together in a different way. I found it to be a really good listen because I was listen, genuinely listening to it with some objectivity. I know it might sound a little disingenuous or whatever, but uh, so I texted, I texted the band and said, hey, listen, you know, we've made a really good record here, you know, congratulations and everything. So because of that moment, I feel good about it. I'm like, oh, you know, it's a good listen. Mm -hmm. It's a double album and there's been, you know, it's quite, quite a lot of bangers was, on there. Was, so that's pretty good. I was listening to it. I was listening to it the other day, Johnny. I thought it sounded great. Oh, really, thanks, Gary. Nice one. I'm too close to it, really. So what's okay. next? Brilliant. Well, I'm packing to go to New York on uh, in a couple of days. So after I speak to you guys, I've got to run around packing. I do a bit of practicing. And then I've got, uh, after promoting the book, I'm doing two nights at this new, beautiful, purpose-built theatre, arts kind of theatre in Manchester in December with the orchestra. I'm doing with, I've assembled a Johnny Marr Orchestra. and Oh, wow. Yeah, we do. So I'm doing two nights... Uh, of my stuff, you know, coincide with the best of and everything. Where, um, where, where did you say? It's called the Aviva Studio. It's, uh, it's a little like the, uh, the Mancunian Barbican, really, in a way. It's that kind of place. Whereabouts uh, in December? Is it beginning or the end? It's 7th and 8th. I'd love to go oh. up. Wouldn't you like to go up, Guy? Oh, I'll come up and bring stuff. I'm going to see what, if, my, if my diary fix. By the way, yeah. by the way, as I said, Johnny, you get, you're seeing the Stones in New York. I, no, I, I, no. That's I not why know. you're going. They're playing, they're, they're doing a show on Thursday night, I heard. No, I'm doing a, when is it? One night next weekend or something. I'm doing a, an evening with, in, um, where, where I get up and we'll talk about the guitar book and do a little bit of playing, demonstrating, Fantastic. that kind of thing. Fantastic. Brilliant. Uh, thanks for coming on, Johnny. Yeah, thanks so much. By the way, Johnny, what I've got to do now, now when we finish this, get in the car, drive down to Somerset, and I've got a week's rehearsal for a cancer charity gig with David Palmer. No way. Yeah, first time we played together for 30 years. That's so for nice that. to hear. He, he, it's, yeah. he, he's well, he's killing it. He's still playing 
He's a mate. Still playing football. Yeah, yeah, but he's 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 great. Yeah, he's a lifer, and he's same as same as you guys. Nice one. And Andy Taylor, right, guy? And Andy Taylor, yeah, and Robert Plant's going to be doing it. It's going to be great. Oh, brilliant! That sounds yeah, that sounds fun. Well, and what are you doing, Gary? What's happening? I'm just I'm doing my new album actually. Just doing. I'm in the studio as as it's my birthday today, and my celebration is go back into the studio. You got a big one coming up as well. We're both October boys. Yeah. So are you Scorpio? Uh Libra. You're Libra. Okay. Yeah, mate. Uh, yeah, that makes more sense. You got a bit. You got a big one though. What, you you got to have a party. I'm doing promotion. <laughs> That's old school. I like that. Yeah. Seriously. Oh, but listen, it was fantastic, and we cannot rave about this book enough. And a shout out to you. Were lucky you had. I would say, obviously, I'm biased. The finest literary agent there is, Elizabeth Shankman. Elizabeth was really helpful. Yeah, again, another person yeah. that I couldn't have done it without. But a few people around me, good people around me, who made this book happen. And uh, uh, as I say, I'm still a little, genuinely, a little bit bemused. I sort of feel it gets like this with projects sometimes, like albums and tours. You feel like you, you're sort of coming out into the light, blinking. You know what I mean? And then you, you, so getting the love for it is is fantastic. But uh, so it's been a mission. Thanks, guys. Thanks for inviting me on to talk about it. Really glad you got it. Good luck with the album, yeah. Gary. Have fun. What a gent. Every time. I know. I but I, but I am, I am, I'm sitting here like most my. You know that green guitar, same colour as my face. <laughs> 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 what? What's the boy to do? I, I, oh, you know, I, on his birthday. But well, the eh? thing is, I've been given a lot of postal orders today, for, for, as gifts. <laughs> so I'm going to try and gather them up with my green shield stamps that I've got. Yeah, go to Woolworths. <laughs> do you know the first? Actually, that's what I do. One thing we didn't get to say, by the way, I've got to say is is the title of Johnny's book, right? If ever there was a shop that needed to happen. Mars Guitars. It's Mars Guitars. Do you know, Come do you know it's on. funny because he says he bought his first, his parents bought him their first guitar in a shop that sold like brooms and things and buckets and space. <laughs> my first guitar that my dad bought me came from a guitar, a shop that sold electric stuff like radiograms and things like that. It was like, oh, yeah. and a couple of guitars. It's so funny those days. They weren't. That's right. Yeah, that's what, yeah. It used to be old. And there were those really kind of, I remember youth, Martin Glover had, when we were at school, he had one of those really funny looking guitars, which had loads of switches on them. Yeah. It cost sort of eight pounds. Yeah. Futurama. Sort of. Well, that, that Hagstrom, don't get me started. I'm so jealous he's got that. Oh, uh, the Roxy music. It's a fine home. It, it really is. It really is. Yeah. It really is. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you to Ian for producing today's episode of Rock on Tours. And we will be back, won't we, guy, next week? We will. We, we will be. We better be. It's good night from me. And good night from them. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK.